Turn with me to Isaiah 53 as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah. We'll be looking at the first six verses today. And we'll finish this chapter uh, next week. The whole chapter, uh, in, combined with the verses that we looked at last week, kind of have one central theme. We just are breaking it down and going through it a little slower just because of the, the gravity of the theme. And so as we come to this portion of the scripture, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, pray that you would help us, particularly as we come to this section of your word that is about your life and your death, that we would understand not only what you went through, uh, but also just that we would have a correct view of who you are, that we would cast down our idols, those those things that we have created, that we want to be you, and that we would look upon you and as you uh, appear in this text today. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So our text today is in Isaiah 53. There are several things, you know, as I prayed, that we we oftentimes will kind of create a caricature of who Jesus is or the things that he has done for us. And I think no verse says that more clearly in our church today, more than any other time in church history, than in verse 5, which says, by his wounds we are healed. This is verses commonly read in such a way for to make us think that uh, Jesus died so that we might have physical healing, that we might be experienced like actual physical well-being on earth. And to just simply claim this truth is to live a life of without sickness or even death, some would say. In a country where the average life expectancy has increased by 25 years, since 1920, in the last 100 years, it's incredible how still over-the-top concerned we are about our physical health and our desire to just keep increasing it. And there's nothing wrong with that, of course, but we would do so at the expense of a verse like this one. And again, to be sure, it's not wrong to be concerned about our physical health. We aren't Gnostics. We do We do have physical bodies. We are concerned about them. But it follows along with our tendency to continually make the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ himself, about us. And our text today gives us a break from that because it puts the focus squarely on our Lord Jesus himself. And while it's true that the gospel absolutely does bring us freedom and riches beyond measure, These things cannot be fully measured in this life. And they should not be fully measured in this life, in a life that is just going away. As we continue to work through Isaiah, the prophet has been helping us to take the focus off of ourselves continually as we work through this, to focus on the Redeemer, the one who is setting us free, the one who will bring us true healing. And the healing comes at a tremendous cost. It's the greatest price ever paid for anything. And so as we work through this text, this text is going to humble us. It's going to show us that the more that we focus on Christ, the more 
that we will, the, the, the closer that we will draw to him. And so as we consider this text, I want to break it into three points. An ordinary Savior, a rejected Savior, and then finally, a victorious Savior. And so with that, look with me at the text, Isaiah 53, verse 1 through verse 6. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah 53, starting at verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. And so as we get into this, and it's really important for us to understand the context of where we're coming from, and particularly this, this question that is asked in verse 1. A lot of times when people read through Isaiah 53, they kind of skip over the question because you really need the context in order to understand what is the thrust behind this question. This big idea that's been building really since chapter 40, honestly, and and, then just building kind of slowly and coming to this crescendo, and the servant that is being presented here is the culmination of that, that theme of redemption. Whereas they would have a type of savior for a time, Cyrus, this one that we've learned about, who would deliver them from Babylonian captivity. There's going to come another who would deliver them once and for all, would deliver God's people for all time, for, for all eternity. And we've borrowed a lot extensively from the New Testament to help us along to understand the identity of this servant to be our Lord Jesus Christ. And so for Isaiah and his people, for those who were going to go in exile many years later, for even those who were under Roman rule when Jesus was born, this is still something that they have to look forward to that is going to happen. There's several hints as to how this was going to happen, building up to this chapter 53. If you look just a couple places, chapter 51, verse 5, this idea says, my righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the people. The coastlands, the coastlands hope for me, for my arm, they wait. Verse 9 of the same chapter, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. And so there's this idea of the arm of the Lord. We'll look at 52.10. You see the same thing. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see 
the salvation of God. And so this idea of the arm of the Lord is something that they're looking forward to, the salvation that is going to be coming. We get the idea as we read these verses that the Lord himself, he's bearing his own arm, right? He's coming. He's going to come. And so when you imagine this idea, imagine the building, imagine all of the the horrible history of Israel being in captivity constantly. When you think of this, Imagine who they would have loved to have come. Imagine, put put yourself in their shoes after just being taken over by all these countries and all of this horrible time. Imagine who you'd like to come. Right? For me, it's this, someone riding this, like a giant bear with laser beams, right? To just kind of vanquish his enemies. It'd be amazing, right? Yes, we win. It's like, no one's going to kill the giant bear. Well, like, 7th century B.C. probably wasn't bears and lasers. But it was probably their equivalent of that. They probably had some grand idea of what the arm of the Lord was going to look like. What it was going to look like for them to actually be able to vanquish their enemies. The arm of the Lord was going to come and pulverize their enemies and make them the greatest civilization to ever be on the earth. So that expectation, that building is the surprise that we should feel when we read these verses. Because that's not the reality of what took place, right? That's not what happened. We know, and and we stand different than all the ones that that read this prophecy and waited, because we know exactly, we know the reality of Jesus. Yet we still struggle with these same tendencies. We still expect Jesus to be something else. That brings us to... The first point, an ordinary Savior. Look with me again at verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is a strange sounding verse in English. But the basic idea behind this question is that no one would believe the way that this arm of the Lord thing is going to actually come about. No one is going to believe it. When it actually happens, you're not going to believe how it's going to happen. Isaiah is writing about this hundreds of years before it would happen, but he anticipates this surprise. No one would guess that the creator of the universe, the redeemer of all of his people, was going to come as a man, and he was going to be rejected, and he was going to die. They expected a conqueror, but instead... They got a baby. And maybe we could even accept that if it was a, like a strong baby, right? Or uh, maybe uh, maybe that grew into a handsome man, right? That was going to just go about and he was going to be a smooth talker and he was going to throw these great big parties and was going to be super wealthy and he was going to have all the traits that we would have if we could be the perfect person that we think we want to be, right? We might be okay with the, the servant coming if it was... You know, if it was the person that we all dream about becoming times ten, if that was Jesus, but that's not at all what happened, is it? And we know that. Isaiah knew that way back then. Look at verse 2. Who is this arm of the Lord? Well, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He grew up before him, he, the servant, the arm, 
grew up before him, God the Father. Like a young plant, nothing special here, just growing up like plants grow. Like a root from dry ground. I love this picture here because it's not from fertile soil. Right? He, I mean, he, was, he was born of a royal lineage for sure. We have those lineages recorded in the Gospels. A kingly lineage. But he had a very earthly parentage, did he not? His mom became pregnant before she was married. His dad was a, his earthly father, not his, not his true father, obviously, but he was a carpenter. He was not born with a scepter or a silver spoon. It's just kind of ordinary. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Jesus would not have stood out in a crowd at all until he chose to, of course. He did stand out in a crowd when he chose to. I mean, if you think about the kings in Scripture, I mean, what do we read about Saul, that he was head and shoulders, literally did stand above the crowd? Or, or David, what do we read about David, that he was ruddy and handsome? And what do we read about Jesus? Yeah. It's just kind of ordinary. No beauty that we should desire him. No one would look at Jesus and think, wow, he has leadership written all over him. No one was going to think that about Jesus. Remember when he first started to gain fame. Remember from the Gospels. How did people react to Jesus when he first started to, to do the miracles and was first preaching? They said, isn't that the carpenter's son? It didn't make sense that someone so ordinary would be doing the things that he was doing because he was just a normal guy, except that he wasn't at all a normal guy. And so church, we often try to make Jesus something that he is not. We want the majesty of Jesus to be on the surface. We want it to be something that that attracts. And if you don't think that's true, if you don't think that's true, if, if you if you're like, I don't know, then just look at the things that churches advertise about themselves. Listen to what they preach from pulpits. Listen to what Christians desire in a church. The church is the body of Christ, is it not? We still want a Savior who can do all the things except for what He's already done. Which Jesus are we presenting, brothers and sisters in the church? The real Jesus was not only ordinary, but He was violently rejected by men. And that brings me to the second point, a rejected Savior. Look with me at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. I mean, consider the ministry of Jesus. We studied the book of Mark. In those three short years that Jesus did public ministry, he rode on a wild roller coaster. He gathered dozens of followers to himself as he did things. He had dozens of followers. But yet, there were 12 of them that were very close to him, right? And he invested a lot of time in those 12. But he had dozens. He had, you know, 70 is one number that you get. You get a lot of different, there were big numbers of people that followed him around everywhere he went. He took on the Jewish establishment, questioning everything they held dear. This is a this is a nation, this is a people who were very proud, who were very traditional. We know all their traditions. We have them recorded. They were very proud. But he questioned all of those things because they were not things that he held dear. 
He angered every single faction in Jewish leadership, purposefully setting in motion the wheels that would cause his life to be forfeit. And in those closing hours, he was sold out by one of his friends, actually sold by one of his friends for money, and abandoned by the rest of them, as they feared the sword more than they feared the one who could calm the storm. He was despised and rejected by men. You know, it makes me think, of how hard we work in life to be accepted, to be the opposite of rejected, right? How hard we work to be accepted at some level, whether it's just a general acceptance, right? The fact that the fact that we can walk down the street and people aren't looking at us funny and like booing at us. That's a general kind of acceptance. Or that we are specifically accepted in places like our families or our circle of friends or our workplaces or wherever. Jesus was rejected by society. He was rejected by his friends. He was rejected by his family. Peter, his closest friend, was there watching his trial. Remember that story from Mark. Was there watching his trial and the first round of his beatings. And Peter turned his face away from his Lord and his friend. People hid their faces from him. Because he was a walking time bomb. And to be associated with him meant death. It meant you were going to die too. But not just anyone. It would be easy to sit and think, well, they turned their faces. We did that. He was despised and we esteemed him not. This is personal. It's not like we would have done something different had we been there with Peter that day. You mean, Pete, what, you're going to reject him, Peter? No, we would have been right there with him. We definitely would have done it. We would have not stood with him. We can hardly do it today under extremely comfortable circumstances. And this isn't about standing up for Jesus when you're questioned about your faith. Sure, we could make some application for that. But I'm talking about the day-to-day living when we are given a choice to fear the world or to trust Jesus. Talking about the mundane things that we worry about, the things that we aren't quite ready to trust Jesus with because, well, we aren't quite sure if he can handle those things and we'd rather handle them ourselves. The disciples didn't trust him to take care of them when the Roman soldiers came, so they ran. I mean, the text tells us he could have dispatched angels to come and just deal with it. At will. He created them, right? He, and they ran. They were afraid. Peter didn't trust him when he denied him when he was questioned by a little girl in that courtyard. Peter didn't even trust him later, much later in his ministry when it came to eating lunch with the Gentile Christians, right? Peter didn't want to do that because he was so afraid of what his Jewish friends might think. Church, In order for us to trust him like we should, we must come to an understanding of the ways that we don't. We want Jesus, we want a Jesus who wasn't rejected. And you can see that in the way that we present him today. It would be a great story if Jesus was a man who got along with everyone, who tolerated whatever and whoever as long as they were being nice. Jesus didn't say, you know what, I'm one of the ways. You can come to the Father through me, of course, but there's all these other options if you'd like to try them. Jesus didn't say that, and this is why he was rejected. 
He was rejected because he's the only way to the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. There are no other options. He presented this, and he was killed for it. To reject Jesus is to reject them the only hope for salvation. To reject Jesus is to accept eternal damnation. And we see that in the next verses, which outline exactly what Jesus' coming rejection brought him. And what brought us. That brings us to the last point, a victorious Savior. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So notice he was a man of sorrows, is what we read, that he took upon himself our grief and he carried our sorrows. He took all the suffering that we deserved. He took on all the grief that we would know. And yet when we look at him, what do we see? We see him as the guilty one. We see him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Though we are the ones that deserved those things, we deserve to be struck by God. God should smite us. He should afflict us. Yet we see Jesus. Jesus is the one who is taking it. Our sins deserve this punishment. Remember the garden. You shall surely die is the punishment for sin. We have all taken that on ourselves simply by being born. Not only that, but the sins that we have committed many, many times since then, like we read from the Heidelberg today. Actually, we increase our debt every day. We deserve that death. It should have been us, but it was not. It was Jesus taking his punishment. And what did that accomplish? Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. And again, this healing has nothing to do with the physical body. Sure, those things are consequences of sin. Ultimately, one day we will have healing in those things in our, in our new bodies and glory with him. But this healing is for right now. For the condition that would separate us from God that has nothing to do with sickness on this earth. Our earthly infirmities are not the problem. Sin and death are the problem. And Jesus took those things upon himself. The chastisement he received from God was due to us. And so how is this victory? Why did Jesus came? He came to set his people free from their sins, to save his people from their sins. He came to make the wrong things right. He came to make things new. Notice the result then, verse 5. These things have brought us peace. We are healed. Because of what he did. Because of what he did, we have victory. We don't have to reach out and claim that victory, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not there for us for the taking that we might 
come to our senses and reach out and grab it. We don't have to speak that victory into existence. He didn't make peace possible. He accomplished peace. He won. It has already been done. This isn't something that we unlock. Jesus has already done it. Once and for all. Notice, it couldn't be left up to us. Right? If it could be left up to us, then verse 6 would be something completely different, would it not? Alright, this is the chastisement that brought us peace. Now, just reach out and grab it in verse 6. That's not what it says. What does verse 6 say? All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Were it left up to us, what would we do? We'd be like sheep in the pasture. There's really no rhyme or reason to what sheep do out in the pasture. They just kind of wander around. They have no sense of their surroundings. They have no sense of their impending doom. They rely on a shepherd to tell them any and everything. We'd go our own way, and our own way leads to death. But because of what he did, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. We now share in that victory. Peter takes this a step further and he gives us a command. He gives us something that we should now do. As he writes his letter and he quotes directly from Isaiah 53. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, please. First Peter chapter two. <clears throat> I recommend this whole chapter to you. I feel like I quote from it every Sunday. It's, it's, it's a nice it's a nice chapter. We're going to look at verses twenty one through twenty five of First Peter chapter two. And again, having Isaiah fifty three ringing in your ears as we read this. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin. This is what we ought to do, brothers and sisters. Listen closely. He bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Notice his conclusion of his paraphrasing of Isaiah 53. Why did he bear our sins and on his body, hanging on a tree? That we might die to sin. That we might live to righteousness. That we might put aside our false notions of Jesus. That we might cast down our idols and instead lift Jesus high. This is coming from Peter. Again, remember Peter's story. He denied Jesus on the night that he was tried. He denied the gospel or refusing to eat with Gentile Christians. And yet here he is commanding us to die to sin and to live to righteousness. Die to sin, brothers and sisters in Christ, because he who knew no sin 
He's already became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Live to righteousness because we've already become the righteousness of God. That thing's already happened in us and because of Christ. And so how do we do this, brothers and sisters in Christ? What do we do? Well, we repent. We believe the truth of the gospel. Confess the sin of wanting a Savior that hasn't been rejected. That's what we want. We know that He is faithful to forgive. Think about it for just a moment. Why is He so faithful to forgive people who can't ever get it right? Well, why would He have gone through all of that in order to say to His people, well, I can't really forgive you now. The Lord laid on Him the iniquities of us all. So go to Jesus and find rest. And if you're here and you're an unbeliever, uh, the same call is offered to you. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. There is no other. There are no other options for you. He isn't just one of those choices that you ought to call out to at all. To reject Jesus is to accept the wrath of God for all eternity. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. In conclusion, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us be faithful to Jesus who bore our grief, who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities. Let us rest in Him. Let us be faithful to Him, to the true gospel message, which He is the only hope of the lost world. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to You in prayer after reading Your Word, we admit our tendencies to want a Christ who wasn't rejected, who wasn't crushed for our iniquities because our iniquities weren't all that bad. So Lord, please forgive us. We pray that you would help us to see you as we ought to see you, to see you as the word shows you to be, but not only for ourselves, but also for a lost world who needs hope and you are their hope. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be clear in that gospel message. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.